the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamers' official RPG podcast. I'm Kat Bailey, and joining me today is Bob Mackey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our RPG podcast. And Jeremy Parrish. It's a me. I'm a hoarding amiibos or something. Each week in Axe of the Blood God, we talk about everything RPG related. And this week, we're going to inaugurate a new feature. It's very exciting. We're calling it the canon of the blood god in which we inaugurate or we introduce we put a classic rpg into the canon and this week is this like canon travel and secret of mana and can can you dress up in one of those crazy wigs and do a little weird dance while people come up to the come up to the canon that'd be awesome if you like this idea send us your feedback you can reach us in the comments or you can go i'm sure that we can go to the inevitable NeoGAF thread, uh, something like that. Uh, but no, this week we are going to be talking about Final Fantasy VI. And a little later, I got an interview in the can with Robert Boyd who of Z-Boyd Games, who is working on Cosmic Star Heroine. And then we're going to finish with reactions to episode one of Acts of the Blood God, in which we hear some of your thoughts on what exactly an RPG is. So Final Fantasy VI classic rpg everybody really likes it so let's talk a little bit about where it came from so it was released in 1994 on the super nintendo um with the idea that every character was going to be the protagonist it was an ensemble story uh the characters were created by a variety of people uh, tara and Locke were created by hironobu sakaguchi uh celeste and gao were created by katase uh, shadow and setzer were by tetsuya nomura and Kaori Tanaka created Edgar and Sabin, and the goal was to unite it all into one cohesive narrative. Isn't uh, Kaori, Kaori Tanaka the uh, also known as Soraya Saga? Soraya Saga. Yes, that's right. He yeah. was named Soraya Saga. Oh, it's a he. Okay. Um, um, or that, am I wrong? I thought I thought uh, Soraya, Soraya Saga was a a female. Well, uh, Kaori... Oh, sorry, a woman. And um, Kaori is definitely a female name. This is me, like, Googling it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Kaori Tanaka totally is a woman. This is amazing. Things I learned on Acts of the Blood God. Yeah, this... Uh, I, I was just going to say, um, there's, a, there's a connection there to Xenogears, because the middle names of the Figaro brothers, um, like, that's kind of echoed in Bart... Uh, I can't remember his last name, but Bart and Zinogears, like they have very similar names. So I think the the idea of like this kind of royalty carried from one game to another. Anyway, that's just a little aside. And it, so it's a bit of trivia, actually, since we're talking about Kaori Tanaka. She actually wrote a Jojinshi uh, called Figaro no Kikkon, which starred uh, Edgar and Sabin, told them told their backstories in a variety of little vignettes. Um, so we learned that, for example, Sabin was sickly growing up, that his brother was protecting him. We learned that Figaro Castle going into uh, Figaro Castle's desert diving technology was kind of a disaster from the start. Very rare right now, but <laughs> it's an interesting little aside. She apparently very much cared for these two characters. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, she she kind of kept them alive in Xenogears. The two royal brothers who have like the same middle names as Edgar, Ed, Edgar and Sabin, uh, and they have a transforming castle full of technology. Like it's a uh, it's like a little theme that was running through the work. It's kind of kind of cool. As long as we're talking about favorite characters, uh, Yoshinori Katasi's favorite character was Celeste. Um, she was supposed to be kind of the conflicted spy archetype when she was created. Um, but that idea didn't really make it into the final game. It was instead transferred to Kate Sith in Final Fantasy VII. Hmm. Um, you mean Ketshi? Ketshi? Oh my gosh, this is like the best day. <laughs> I thought it was Kate Sith. Nope, That's- it's it's a, it's a named after a, I think, Welsh or Irish deity. So even though it's spelled Kate Sith, it's pronounced Ketshi. Ketchy, wow. Man, knowledge bombs yeah. stopping left and right. <laughs> knowledge bombs. We need to just move on to a phonetic alphabet. This whole English thing isn't working. <laughs> Look, it's not my fault that they didn't have voice acting in Final Fantasy VII, and I was apparently pathologically unable to actually pronounce, uh, understand pronunciations. So, like, things <laughs> things I learned on today's podcast, Ketchy. Well, I mean, yeah, there's, there's no reason to have known that if you don't know what Ketchy is. That's something that I found out long after the fact, but then I was like, oh... Okay, that's interesting. Catchy, wow. Cat, yeah. I have some trivia. If you are uh, out of trivia, I have a few. I have a few, a few bombs drop of my own. All right, go for it. Okay. Well, I mean, you can say it's an ensemble game, but I, I secretly think that um, it is a game with two uh, female leads, uh, Terra and Celeste. And actually, the their names come from the name of a Spanish novel that several operas were based on, called La Celestina. And Tina is Tara's name in Japan, so there's there's a connection there. And um, I also I also talked to Sakaguchi um, in December about um, a Terra Battle, the game, the, the mobile game he works on. And um, I wanted to ask at least one Final Fantasy question. So I've heard like all these um, strange rumors, like oh, Final Fantasy VI isn't popular in Japan. No one cares about Final Fantasy VI in Japan. It didn't sell well. Things like that. But I talked to him, and he's like, no, actually, it sold better than we thought it would. It, it's America where it sold, it sold poorly, and I don't know why Americans like this game, because no one bought it. Huh. And that's essentially uh, what he told me about Final Fantasy VI. And I couldn't work that into uh, the piece I was going to write, so I, I thought I'd bring it out here. Well, that's I officially from the source. I bought it, too, yeah. Did, did people really not buy it? Because uh, apparently enough people bought it back in the day for it to be, I mean, reasonably successful, right? Yeah, I mean, that's not a game that I saw sitting around on store shelves. Like, it seems to have sold through its allocations. So. That's probably because every store ordered one copy because they're like, <laughs> what the hell is this? It's $80. Oh. It's got this weird thing on the cover. I, it, it was distributed better than that. I, I think maybe it's just relative to Japanese sales. It didn't sell that well. You know, it probably sold like Maybe. a quarter of a million units. And the original Final Fantasy, you know, it sold, I think, more than a million. But that's because it had Nintendo uh, giving it a first-party push with a ton of promotion and publicity and, like, Nintendo power. So, yeah, you know, um, I think there was a pretty steep drop in sales. But, I mean, I've always felt like that game sold well here for, you know, for the time and for what it was and has been very, very popular always you know even even before final fantasy exploded in, in the u.s i'm I mean, just it was certainly popular yeah. enough that i actually heard of it back in 1994 which was when i did not even own a super nintendo and i didn't really particularly care about rpgs at that time so it must have had some traction here in the u.s yeah i'm just telling you what he told me so well, okay. are you calling him a liar he made the game cat and jeremy <laughs> oh i'm sorry <laughs> 
So I'm just saying he spent a lot of time surfing lately, and maybe he like bumped his head on a surfboard or something. Maybe <laughs> a few things. I don't know. I'm just putting the possibility out there. Too much poi for Mr. Sakaguchi. <laughs> Bob and I had a uh, Sakaguchi sighting in Seattle during PAX. We were sitting right behind him, weren't we, Bob? Having dinner. Yeah, and I bumped into him a lot at PAX. I didn't literally bump into him. I'd be like, oh, there's Sakaguchi. I should be more impressed and more excited, but he's just a guy, unfortunately. <laughs> I can tell you so, just a regular guy. A while. Yeah, I'm JD. Do you have now. any other trivia, Bob? Um, no, other than the fact that, like, I, I believe, um, based on you know just the way the game is set up, uh, I, I believe like Terra is really the the protagonist for the first half, and Celeste is really the protagonist for the second half of the game. Although, yeah, I totally uh, agree. I, I agree with that strongly. Although Terra does disappear from the party for a pretty good chunk of the uh, the first half of the game. Yeah, I was thinking has, of that after she has her freak out and. You have to go find her, but she's still like the motivating force in the game. Like everyone's trying to find her and see what's going on. So, yeah, I, I also tend to agree with that. I, I see them as the main characters, and everyone else is like kind of the support cast. And I mean, jumping ahead a little further, but you can finish the game without, without even recruiting Terra. Like after the second half of the game, you can just ignore that quest line entirely and be like, "What happened to Terra? I don't know. I, I think I'll you never can know." Beat the game with just three characters. Yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, interestingly. Uh, Celeste wasn't supposed to have that big of a role in the game originally, but her role steadily expanded as time went on because, as we already talked about, Kitase, who had a large hand in uniting the narrative, really liked her. So that would probably explain why she is featured so prominently in the back half of the game. Yeah, he was the one who gave her the um, the kind of scene at the end of the world the uh, where she could you know uh, find find healthy fish for her quote unquote father or grandfather and uh or else uh fail to find good fish for him and and give up in despair like he told me when i interviewed him back in jeez i want to say like 2008 2009 that that little that little bit that memorable bit was uh was his his invention hmm. by the way when you were playing the game did uh sid survive or die oh he died he died so hard yeah, yeah, I don't think I've ever had him live in my game. I just got really unlucky. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've, I've gotten him to live, but it's much more affecting if he doesn't, to be honest. Yeah, actually, yeah, I think I did get him to live once, but he just stays in bed for the rest of the game, right? Yeah, he's like, oh, I'm feeling better. Here, have a raft. Okay, I'm going to live here on this island with dying squirrels for the rest of my life. <laughs> it does seem more poignant for him to die, and that is what launches uh, Celeste you know, on the next leg of her journey, or into suicide. I forget which happens first. She, she throws herself off a cliff. Okay. Right. And then she she sees a uh, bird that has uh, Locke's bandana, like carrying Locke's bandana. And she's like, oh, right. this must mean he's alive, as opposed to like the bird ate his corpse and carried his bandana away. So that gives her hope. <laughs> In this new oh world, gosh. the birds are terrifying. Even the seagulls are monsters. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, that, that island where you, uh, where you first wash up after the, um, the, the world of ruin... Uh, happens it's it's a really bleak place like the only creatures that live there uh have a status ailment on them so that they will die after like two rounds oh that's right yeah yep it's it's very interesting half the fish are poisonous so a couple more pieces of trivia really quickly tna pro wrestler chris saban actually took that name to honor saban interestingly enough are you kidding me that's awesome and original Jap- the original Japanese name of the Esper Crusader, Jihad. Whoa. So, I guess it's good that they changed that. 
It was yeah. it was a, an an interesting uh, decision to make. I'll say that. Well, it's no worse than Archer's organization being called ISIS for the first four seasons. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of um, of Saban, and we talked about original names earlier, uh, and uh, original names just now. You know, in in Japanese, his original name was Mash. But it's not actually Mash. People so, people say, think it's Mash, but that's supposed to be Matthew. Yeah, it's I always thought it was Matthew. Matthew is written in Japanese, but I see him written out as Mash a lot, which would be you know it'd be funny if he were like Alan Alda, but he's not. So, <laughs> are there any other name changes outside of Tara, Tina, and uh, Mash in uh, Sabin? I don't believe so. I mean, no, yeah, Cyan is Cayenne in Japanese. Oh yeah, but that, that was more of been, a limitation yeah, of right. uh, yeah. How do you guys feel about those changes? I actually prefer Sabin to, hey, it's Matt, your friendly neighborhood uh, bodybuilder. I think I think Matthew sounds more like a royal type name, personally. It's yeah, it's more biblical, Edgar, definitely. Edgar and Matthew, like that seems like what you would name two princes. So I kind of like the original, but Sabin's good too. It's unique, um, and I definitely like Cyan better than Cayenne because Cyan sounds exotic. Yeah, it's just a shade of blue, but like. It's it's unusual. It's different. Whereas Kyan, I'm like he's supposed to be like this bushido samurai dude from you know like the the orientalist nation, but he's named after a spicy pepper from South America. What? Yeah. <laughs> when I played Final Fantasy VI for the first time, I was still in. Those were the days when I still named the characters after all of my friends. So for the longest time, uh, they had names like Joey and Matt <laughs> and Cat. So that's funny. When my stepdad played through Final Fantasy four and I watched him play through it, he named uh, Kane after me. So I kept betraying him and my mom <laughs> <laughs> throughout. It was kind of hard. To, it was kind of interesting to watch. Oh uh, that was that was when I was kind of in like my like crazy man. I remember Star Wars from when I was a kid. That was awesome. I love Star Wars again phase. So I named all the characters after Star Wars characters and it fits really well. It's oh, crazy wow. how well it works. So wait, was Terra Leia? I don't remember exactly what what names I mapped on there, but um, like Locke Moro, has to be Luke or Han Solo, right? Uh, he was he was Han, yeah. Okay, yeah. And uh, Umaro was Chewie. Works. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember all the. All and the, Mog the was I just made. called Wicket, right? <laughs> Actually, Mog and uh, Umaro would be a pretty good R two D two and three PO, except like with the reversed roles. Yeah. Anyway. Final final piece of trivia, and this is one that everybody knows. When it was released here in the U.S., it was, of course, called Final Fantasy III, because Final Fantasy... Uh, well, a bunch of Final Fantasies hadn't come out here at this point. So there really had only been, what, two other Final Fantasies plus Mystic Quest? Plus Final Fantasy Legend 1 through 3 plus Final Fantasy Adventure. But who counts those? Yeah. I mean, at least one of those was a renamed, like, Seiken Densetsu game, so... Well, Seiken Densetsu was actually... Uh, the Final Fantasy Adventure was Final Fantasy Gaiden in Japan. But the, right. uh, the Legend games were Saga games. All of these ga- naming conventions are so confusing. Such a mess. Yeah. I'm just and glad that uh, Final Fantasy VI was actually released under that name here, at, at least once, so I, I no longer have to put that aside in every time I write about the game. Like, which you might remember as Final Fantasy III for the Super Nintendo. It's like, no, that is that is established knowledge now. I no longer have to tell you this anymore. I was just glad when Sony said, nope, F it, Final Fantasy VII, that's what the name is. We're just going with the regular conventions. And everybody was like, whoa, that's so hardcore in 1997. Yeah, that's the way to do it. So, Final Fantasy VI, I'm curious to hear what your personal takes are. Uh, Jeremy, 
What is what are your thoughts on Final Fantasy VI today? That's kind of a big question. Um, mm. Do you want to get more more granular there? I mean, do you still like it these days? Uh, do you think that it holds up as an RPG? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I had been dissecting the design of it recently, um, and it definitely has some some foibles that I think. I think there are things you could do better. The The challenge level is practically non-existent if you have any experience with RPGs, but it's a good introductory RPG because it is so, um, you know, it's pretty straightforward for the first, like, 10 hours. And on top of that, it takes a long time to really roll out all of its systems. Like, it's very interesting that it has this big, you know, the, the whole Esper Magisite system, but you don't get that until, like, a third of the way into the game. Um, up until that point, all the characters are differentiated with their uh, class-specific skills. So, you know, combat is never just a matter of, or it doesn't have to be a matter of just fight, fight, heal. Like, you can use the special abilities because those are pretty powerful, but eventually those start to trail behind, and around that time, uh, everyone in the party gets the potential to use magic. So there's some, some really interesting uh, kind of protracted uh, tutorial element to the game where um, you really kind of get comfortable with it and then they change up the rules and make it much more complicated. Um, I, I, think it, I think it's interesting to compare that to Final Fantasy XIII, which you know was like a 20-hour tutorial before the game really came into all of its own systems, but it felt much more protracted. Like There wasn't as much depth to it for them to draw out that long. Um, and, you know, that was because the, they put so much emphasis on story, whereas it's, it's much more of a uh, kind of... Um, I don't know. Final Fantasy VI is definitely a story-driven game, but in a uh, sort of like a grand epic sense, not so much character-focused uh, like Final Fantasy XIII. I don't know. It's just it's interesting how every Final Fantasy, despite kind of being you know working with similar concepts and, and mechanics, like each one of them plays out differently. You know, compared to Final Fantasy V, where you go through one temple and all of a sudden you have your crystal abilities available. So you can start opening up jobs and customizing your characters really hardcore. You can't really do the customization thing until the magic system appears in Final Fantasy VI. And that takes quite a while. So, um, you know, it's it's kind of in between Final Fantasy IV where there was basically no customization ever and Final Fantasy V it was all customization all the time. It's more of a, a happy medium between the two. Bob, I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. Sure. What are your memories of Final Fantasy VI? Well, uh, seeing as it came out when I was 12 and everything is the best it'll ever be when you're 12, it was nothing but uh, sheer bliss for me. And um, I was on the Final Fantasy train since Final Fantasy I, and then Final Fantasy IV is what really got me into RPGs. So as soon as people started talking about a new Final Fantasy game, I was on board. And I remember Game Player's uh, magazine, which I loved, absolutely loved as a, as a young kid, um, they had one of the most effusive and just hyperbolic reviews for Final Fantasy ever. For any game ever, I think, uh, that they ever wrote about. Just like, this is a perfect 10. It is the most amazing thing you'll ever play. You must buy this game. You must play this game. And that is really all the convincing I needed. And um, I was there. I got it the first month it was out. And I, I, was, I was just playing it and replaying it for years after that. So that's ba- that's basically where I was when um, Final Fantasy VI was out. I liked RPGs. I wasn't sure how much I liked them until really... Um, I became super obsessed with this game. Jeremy, how about you? When did you first play it? Well, I'm really old, so I was <laughs> in college. And um, it was, you know, I guess kind of a different experience for me. 
But like Bob, I had sort of gotten on the Final Fantasy train with the original and had slowly warmed up to the genre over time. Really, Secret of Mana was what, what kind of pulled me in finally. So I was totally on board for Final Fantasy VI. That was like the next big RPG to come along. And uh, so I, I just remember, you know, really, really enjoying it and being surprised by how big it seemed and how much depth there was to it and how um, how involved its narrative was and its characters, how many characters it had and how well-balanced they all were. I mean, there are some characters that you're like, eh, whatever. But for the most part, like, you know, you kind of want everyone in your party because you like them all. Um, so it was really impressive in that sense. And I remember kind of uh, trying to convince my friends at the time who were also into video games that it was really great and they should check it out. But they were like, oh, it's all just like menus and words. I don't, I don't care about that. They wanted to play Street Fighter or something along those lines, you know, more action-driven games. So I kind of stood alone in my interest of it or interest in it. But uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I just remember it came out. I played through it, really enjoyed it, took like two weeks to beat it, and was just, you know, uh, on edge the entire time, wanting to play more of it. And once I finished it, Donkey Kong Country came out, so I bought that. Got like halfway through and just lost interest, so then I went back and replayed Final Fantasy three, Final Fantasy VI, a few more times over the next year. So Final Fantasy VI was my first real RPG. Oh, wow. I mean, I had played Final Fantasy Legend, I had enjoyed it. Um, but otherwise, I did not own a Super Nintendo through most of the 90s. My parents did not buy one, me one. And I didn't have the discipline to spend six months to a year saving up my allowance to buy one. So I did not get a Super Nintendo until 1999. But I was aware of Final Fantasy VI because Nintendo Power had been touting its incredibly long ending. It was this massive epic. It was crazy. It was amazing. It was gorgeous. And so it always kept it always stuck in the back of my mind for those reasons so when i finally got a super nintendo like years later which i got for free from a co-worker at kfc thank you very much uh to that co-worker whose name i forget <laughs> um i was like you know i really want a big game that will keep me busy for a long time and final fantasy 6 just came to mind and i at that point final fantasy 7 was out everybody had been playing it everybody loved it uh, so I decided to go and find Final Fantasy VI, which back in those days, uh, Funko Land still sold Super Nintendo games, so I was able to get it for $50 uh, from them. They actually had it in stock, impressively. I'm surprised and it was that uh, that little amount of money. I, I I'd expected to go for much more back then. Uh, it was just a cartridge. Uh, okay, it was that's, a box yeah. or anything. So I wish, I wish in retrospect that I had also asked them for a copy of Chrono Trigger, because they probably would have had it. But... I took it home, and I really enjoyed it. It was amazing. It was uh, deeply affecting in many ways. Uh, things that still stand out to me, uh, Celeste falling, uh, Celeste's suicide attempt on the cliff, um, the opera scene, obviously. Uh, it, it was a deeply emotional game. And I, I think I think those scenes still hold up for the most part. So... It was. I played through it in it in its entirety, and I loved it. I was like, "This is a, an amazing game." And interestingly enough, I kept. Uh, I had a similar experience to. Uh, I think it was Jeremy who, in that I kept trying to convince my friends, "No, you got to play Final Fantasy VI. It's great." And they're like, "No, Final Fantasy VII. It's the best right here." Yeah. I mean, have you looked at this game? So I was like, "Fine, fine. I'll, 
I will play Final Fantasy VII, and I, I would say the rest was kind of history from that point. But Final Fantasy VI was definitely my introduction to, like, my first serious introduction to the genre. Hmm. So, I'm curious. Uh, a point of, I would say, almost contention is the battle system. And we talked about it a little bit. Uh, Bob, what are, what are your thoughts on the customization in particular? It is, um, I mean, it's kind of like a double-edged sword because you have more customization than ever b- before in a Final Fantasy, I would say. Uh, but you are also at risk of making every party member kind of play the same way to the point where your party members are really just like uh, cosmetic for the most part, I mean, some of them have skills that are great to use, but uh, towards the end of the game, you're really more about magic and espers and things like that. So it's mainly like, which characters do you like? Use them in your party. And while that's cool, I, I kind of prefer characters with more defined roles, like Final Fantasy IV, but they were obviously going for a much different thing. So when it comes to the battle system in Final Fantasy VI, um, if I recall correctly... You find espers as the day as the game goes on. Um, you steadily uh, and some of them are hidden. Like Bahamut, I think, is an unlockable one. Uh, Doomgaze is one. Yeah, um, quite a few are, are are hidden in the game. And they grant specific abilities. Um, and the espers are interchangeable. So in many ways, uh, the characters in Final Fantasy VI, while while they are narratively unique, they are kind of like they are in Final Fantasy VII, where they are not necessarily. I, I suppose they all have their own abilities. Like, right. um, so in that sense, they're more unique than Final Fantasy VII. But what do you think about the kind of the interchangeable nature of the Espers? Well, oh, what do I think? Oh, Jeremy, go ahead. Um, I don't know, like. There are, there are a lot of elements to the espers that people tend not to look at too much. Um, one of the important things about FF6's character customization is that at leveling up, your characters only gain hit points. They don't gain strength. They don't gain like magic resistance or anything like that. The only stat gains you get uh, besides hit point and magic points up uh, come from espers. When you level up with an esper equipped, uh, espers confer bonuses to your stats. So there's actually, if you if you're really you know into it, you can you can really customize, you can min max, you can really uh, control the shape and, and direction of your characters. Um, but it is pretty optional because the balance of the game is generally pretty low uh, in terms of difficulty. Uh, it it kind of feels like a midpoint between Final Fantasy V, where your characters can be anything you want, but you know it's kind of time-consuming and expensive to build them out to different class roles uh, and Final Fantasy 7 where basically they're just holding materia for you and all the uh, the powers are in materia so um, so yeah I don't know like I don't think it's entirely successful but I do think that there are some sort of interesting things going on under the hood that you can experiment with and while it's true that your uh, your character's basically lean on magic in the latter, latter portions of the game, so you want to build up your you know, magic attack power and so forth. Um, you don't have to take that route. And also, 
it's kind of fun just to see how much you can break the game. Like that was the first RPG <laughs> yeah. I ever played where I really like started to, to realize, you know, if I put this ability with this ability, what happens? Like, you know, you have the, um, the Genji glove, which gives you, is that the one that gives you four attacks and then you, you can, uh, dual wield. So you can put, you know, two swords on someone with, uh, the ability to dual wield and use the Genji glove. And so all of a sudden they're doing eight physical attacks per turn. That's pretty crazy. You could, you could put the economizer in the gym box. I think it was, on that's right. Yeah. One of your magic users. So they could cast like double magic every turn for one magic <laughs> point per spell. Like I actually have beaten Kefka, without him taking anything but his initial turn by putting uh, the gym box and the economizer on Terra and having her cast Ultima and Quick over and over again because Quick allows her to, or allows anyone who uses it, to take like three turns before anyone else. And then Ultima is like extremely powerful magic. So you cast Ultima twice, then you cast Quick to sustain your turn. And basically you just enter this infinite loop where no one else gets to move and one character wipes out Kefka before he can even... Re, you know, respond to your actions. So, you know, from from that sense, it's it's fun just to see like what you can do to bend the game over your knee and break it, uh, which is something that, like I said, you know, I'd never really experienced in a, in a game like that before because up until that point, it was all very much about like this is a hard game. You have to really work and you have to really grind and you have to level up. Final Fantasy VI was an attempt to get away from the tedium of grinding and to make things much faster paced, more fluid. And, you know, the trade-off was that it wasn't as difficult, but I don't necessarily think that's bad. It's it's good. I'm happy that for the most part we've gotten away from the idea that to, quote-unquote, enjoy an RPG, you have to spend a lot of time doing just tedious, you know, busy work. I also, my personal favorite was being able to, I think, use Vanish mm. on an enemy and then using, I think, what was it, X-Zone? That's right. Yeah, that they they took that out of the uh, Game Boy Advance uh, version. They They fixed it. Yep. They also fixed the localization. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, the I think localization was good. I, I, I mean, aside from spelling Phoenix F E N I X, I think that was a, a space issue more than a typo mm-hmm. or spelling issue. The the original was localization was was constrained heavily by the amount of of space available on the cartridge. He had to, you know, uh, Ted Woolsey did the localization, and he had to cut out like half the text because English text just isn't as efficient as Japanese text. So, you know, there's, there's a lot more substance to the game that couldn't really come through, but that's not a problem with the localization. That's a mm-hmm. problem with the technology. The localization itself was really good. It had a lot of personality. Um, you know, it was one of the first games that I played that really felt like, oh, you know, someone who understands English and can write coherently in my language did the script for this. Yeah, you know, this was before Earthbound, and I, I didn't know about working designs games at that point. And I think you know they maybe had like Cosmic Fantasy and one other game, maybe Lunar under their belts. So they were they were still kind of finding their own voice anyway. So it was it was really nice to play a game that was like kind of punchy. It had some funny turns of phrase, like "Son of a Submariner." Like, okay, I know he's actually cursing there, but it's so zany. Like, it's it, it kind of works for me. Jeremy, and, you licentious howler. That's exactly. all I have to say. You there sound like chapters from a self-help book. Yeah. Yes, exactly. These there are were, all great lines. There were Beavis and Buttheads references in the I was going to bring that up, yeah. Sake. Like, no, no video games did that at that point. Certainly the GBA, uh, sorry, the GBA version retains that Beavis and Butthead reference, in case you're wondering. I think it, it also was... retains Son of a Submariner. Like, there are certain turns of phrase that became sort of infamous among fans, and uh, 
like those have become sort of the legacy of those games. So those tend to get kept when uh, tend to can tend to be retained when new localizations come along. As long as we're quoting Kafka, uh, let's talk about him briefly. Uh, in short, best JRPG villain. Yeah, that's because he's also the best Batman villain. So uh, <laughs> he automatically wins. He's he's the Joker. That's it. I mean. That's that's kind of. I mean, he's the Joker with like a kingdom, I guess. He's a Joker without with an army. Batman. Yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, he's interesting because he's the most successful villain of any Final Fantasy I can think of. Like, he got what he wanted, and he spends the second half of the game basically playing God. Um, like, what other game does that? That's pretty crazy. And and the interesting yeah. thing is, he didn't even really want power. He just, you know, wanted to do what he wanted to do. He was very mercurial like like bob said he is very much the joker he's not driven by the the typical motivations that that fuel video game villains he was much more of a uh you know like an agent of chaos kind of thing yeah i think it's uh, it's funny the game never really tries tries to humanize him you get one line of dialogue that's like oh uh, magitech made him go crazy or something but that's essentially all you get to his history like we don't know where he came from we don't know really who he is He's just a crazy guy that somehow like worked his way to the top, and now he's going to screw everyone over. Yeah, but I, I kind of like that. Like, I, I feel like oh yeah, it would, like it would it take too. away something from him if they were, you know, like oh, you know, I knew him when he was a kid, and he was really sweet, and he liked pod racing. Like, no, we don't need that. He, <laughs> oh uh, man, you know, he's just he's just a crazy dude. Sometimes it is more fun to just make a villain the agent of chaos, as you guys were saying. See also Luca Blight. It's like no, they're just there. They are eminently hateable they have a long list of crimes they must be ended that can be a lot of fun in a video game and of course i'd be completely remiss if i didn't mention that that laugh that laugh is amazing that is a great laugh yes the sound it's one instance where a piece of sound design can really make the character along with the theme the theme was amazing yeah, I mean, we haven't even talked about the music. I really, I really want to talk about it. I've been dying to talk about the soundtrack for this game. Bob, talk about the soundtrack. Please let me. Uh, I mean, I personally think of it as uh, Uematsu's uh, best work. But even if you disagree with me, I think you can at least agree that it's like, his most cohesive soundtrack album. Like, in, in going with the whole operatic theme, like everything just fits together so nicely. And I don't think any other Final Fantasy game did this whole leitmotif thing where, like, Every character essentially has their own. It's not like Peter and the Wolf where they have their own instrument, but they have their own song. And in many times, those those themes are reprised in different ways to get emotions out of you because you are emotionally connected to the music because it's connected to a character. Like I, I can just I can immediately think of like every character's theme if I if I have to sit down and just hum it to myself because they're all so memorable. They're all so evocative of those characters, and they're just like just these really great pieces of music. Yeah, I mean that was that was something Uematsu had played around with a lot in the 16-bit RPG, in the 16-bit Final Fantasies. Um, Final Fantasy IV has quite a few character light motifs. Um, I mean, if you look on the soundtrack, there's like Rosa's theme. I think it's called Theme of Love, but then there's Rydia's theme and so forth. So you know that that was that was something he had definitely played around with, but it, it certainly reaches its uh, its zenith in. Final Fantasy VI, where every character, there's like 14 playable characters, and pretty much all of them have a theme, and the major characters, yeah, their themes are woven in and out of uh, of different melodies within the game. Um, even Kefka, you know, his theme is basically the final battle theme, but instead of being this, like, goofy theme, it's, uh, 
it becomes this kind of like grand progressive rock opera yeah <laughs> instrumentation and i don't think anyone has ever topped that uh at least working with the tools that uematsu was working with just that that uh what's it called again um the kafka's dancing, fun- dancing mad yeah like just sitting down to listen to it um before this recording mm-hmm. i just am like wowed by the fact that someone even attempted this like a like 17 oh. minute song or 13 minute song yeah, it's really with, long. With all these different movements that are all so different from each other, and that and the ending theme, which is like a 20-minute arrangement of these themes you've heard before, but they're they're arrangement in ways you haven't heard before, and it all works so well. I just, like, I am uh, I'm a little too maybe effusive about the soundtrack, but it just astounds me that, like, this is him on top of his game. Like, he can, he can do no better after this. And he still has done plenty of good stuff, but I feel like everyone has their creative peak, and I think this was his for sure. Dancing Mad legitimately blew me away in 1999, uh, just because the fact that it had it smooth it synced into a different movement with each part of Kefka when you're fighting Kefka, uh, it was so memorable, and it was all done on the Super Nintendo. I mean, it was absolutely the peak of the Super the 16-bit era's like audio. Well, the Super NES had a lot of advantages over previous consoles because it didn't have like a wavetable generator for music. It was just all sampled audio. So he really kind of took that and ran with it, much more so than anyone else before him had, and uh, built a lot of really interesting, unique instrument sounds into uh, the Final Fantasy VI soundtrack and worked around those. So it's also you know not just a compositional, but also a technical uh, masterpiece. I'm also kind of disappointed that Square hasn't done a lot with that soundtrack. I mean, there's there's one orchestrated album, and it's not very good. And there there will be occasional songs on releases that they do, but I don't think they've really put their heart into doing a full like Final Fantasy VI like remastering or like uh, rearrangement or another orchestrated one that's done by people that are competent. I don't know. I, I just don't see them working enough with the soundtrack. Uh, how many arrangements are there of One Winged Angel at this point? <laughs> Jesus. Well, you know the. Um the the opera has been completed. Oh yeah, that's um, right. The, uh, the what was it called? The the tour that Uematsu did a few years ago. Um, I guess it's still going on, but um, I saw it back in Chicago in like 2012. And uh, yeah, he had like not only added lyrics to the to the opera, but actually completed the opera itself. Uh, the uh, the final act of it's not that great, but you know at least you get to see finally got to see what happened what was supposed to happen after ultron or ultros uh uh showed up age of age of ultros that would be an amazing that's so cool but i really wish the performance would have been interrupted by like a giant octopus and people playing characters you know that would have been so appropriate (laughs) yeah so I, i suppose the final topic that i want to visit is one of the points of criticism that tends to get levied at final fantasy 6 is that it has such a large cast that inevitably some characters end up getting lost in the mix or kind of become one note. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I, I feel that's mostly resor- uh, like um, the one note characters are just sort of like the joke characters that there's not a lot to them. So you're not really expecting much, but although like Gao has a very tragic uh, backstory in that his like father just went senile and doesn't remember him or anything. So like in the second part of the game, you can confront that if you want to, and it gives Gao a lot of humanity. You understand why he was like abandoned or whatever, but um, stuff like Umaro and um, 
Zo- uh, who's the uh, Go-Go? Like, they, they really are just, like, goofy Joe characters. And I th- I'm not really annoyed that we don't hear about Umaro's tragic, you know, how he lost his family and, you know, the great Narsh Wars or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Gogo especially. I, I actually had completely forgotten about him or her. Um, Gogo's just there as a reference to Final Fantasy V, basically. Yeah. You, he's on a side quest, so you, like, go through a big cave and everything, and that's where you find him, right? Yeah, well, it's not a cave. It's, like, the inside of a monster. You have to be eaten Zone by a monster. Oh, right. It's, it's really unintuitive. Um, but if you find him, then, or her, then that character can join your party and, and kind of basically do everything anyone else can do. You know, Final Fantasy VI was so cool in that regard, where there were so many things to find. The world felt so expansive. The, the scope is really pretty remarkable. The scope of that game is really pretty remarkable for a 16-bit era game. Yeah. And and it's really driven home by the world of Ruin, which kind of opens up in this, the second half, and that you're giving total freedom to just explore, find the reunite the characters, see, see what's going on with them, learn more about their backstories, and then whenever you're get ready to do it, then you can finally go defeat Kafka. But yeah. so ambitious. I also like that that was just a surprise by the game. I mean, if you looked at the packaging, you could you could tell there was something more after the World of Balance, but I didn't, or maybe I just was too stupid to understand. So the fact that the game didn't end after the Floating Continent was a surprise to me. I figured, like, this was what I was working towards. I, this was going to be the final boss, but then there was, like, this whole entire world that was transformed after what I thought would be the end. And that yeah. is probably what hooked me the most. I thought it was going to be like a Zelda Link to the Past style light dark world. Like, oh, eventually you'd go to the world of ruin that I saw on the backside of the map. But no, like they just freaking ended the world. It's uh, it was it was pretty ambitious. I know a lot of people complain about how the game quote unquote falls apart when you get to the world of ruin, but I really disagree. Like to me, that's kind of where the game really starts. Everything up until that point has been very very linear. And the world of ruin is the point at which it's basically just like, okay, you have all these tools, you have all these characters you can recruit. Now go find them and see what you can do. It's basically just a sandbox for players to just kind of go hog wild with all the mechanics and, and concepts in the game. And I think it's great. But you know, I'm someone who likes you know RPGs that don't have to be totally linear and story driven. I, I like having the freedom to just kind of wander around in an open world. And uh, the, the the world of ruin was really good about that. Yeah, it definitely goes against the the trend in design at the time where these things were just like linear and narrative driven. It, this was more like a Western, more Western style convention where it's like, here's an open world. We'll start you off in some places, but it's up to you to figure out what you want to do next. And oh yeah, here's the final boss area if you want to hit that. It actually kind of reminds me of like, in any JRPG, like before you fight the final boss, you can go up around the world and clean up some stuff and do some side quests. But that's essentially the second half of this game. It's just like you can go to the last dungeon; it's right there. But you can also do all this other stuff if you want to. Yeah, and there's so much out there to find. Like, you know, I, I played it that first time through, and I found most of the stuff, but not everything. And uh, so then I bought a guide for it, you know, the uh, the really nice player's guide that Nintendo Power published because I was like, wow, look at that great artwork. Um, but then, you know, I used that to find all the little bits and pieces that I had missed. And, you know, I, I recruited all the characters again the first time through, but uh, there was there was just all kinds of little side incidental stuff that I had not found. Like the, um, which which is the, up, the Esper you can upgrade? It's like upgrade Odin to Raiden or something like that. Yeah. Like- um, it's, yeah, it's like, that's right. Yeah, there's like 
wacky stuff you can do that you wouldn't think to look for, but it's, it's all in there. And the more you explore, the more you can do. So as the fi- on that note, um, I think I know what your guys' answer is going to be. I, I think it's kind of an obvious one, but we should do it anyway. Does Final Fantasy VI deserve to be in the canon of the Blood God? Are we allowing more than one <laughs> entry per franchise? Because I I can actually think of some uh, Final Fantasies I'd rather see canonized and enshrined. I don't know. Should we? I don't, I don't know, know if it's, we it's, need... It's your idea. I mean, I, I don't know if we need those kind of restrictions. If you think that would make yeah. for better choices, sure. But I don't know. If, if they're just arbitrary, then if they're not serving us, then I don't know. So, Tales so what of you're saying Tales is... Tales of Zillia too. Yes, both, which, both are canonized. Which Final Fantasy would you rather see canonized? Me personally? Yeah. I mean... I can guess. I would say 4, even though I don't really Ooh. enjoy it that much anymore because I've played it to death. Um, like, it was such a momentous occasion for the, the genre. Just a total rethinking of how RPGs could work. Um, Final Fantasy V for going the exact opposite direction of 4 and really saying, like here's this console RPG experience, but you can go as in-depth with character development as you want. Like, you can just build out your crazy, customized characters. That was great. Um, I mean, I I personally have a huge soft spot for Final Fantasy VIII for going a Mm. step beyond Final Fantasy V in terms of just, like, go wild, folks. Just do whatever you want. And, of course, Final Fantasy XII is is a, a huge personal favorite of mine. So, you know, that's that's a lot of Final Fantasy games to stick on there. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Final Fantasy has had such a giant impact on the genre in general, same with Dragon Quest and a variety of other series. Uh, and each each entry is so unique and has such a, its own character that it would seem unfair to not be able to to only canonize one. So in that regard, I think that it makes sense to be able to canonize multiple entries in the in the series as to whether certain entries deserve to be canonized well that's something that we'll revisit in the future but i obviously think final fantasy 6 should be kind of in the rpg canon it's an essential game to play it is uh, it it is one of the most ambitious rpgs i've ever played it came it, it really put uh, it along with chrono trigger really put an exclamation mark on one of the best eras or the best era for Japanese RPGs and I I think it's essential oh I totally agree but do not play the mobile version or I will find you (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh the art oh my gosh okay that that inspired me to write an entire article about how these these classics are being destroyed but uh you can find that on your own um so personally I'm going to say it's borderline canon um I mean, I, I really think it's great, but I don't really think it was super innovative. I think it was um, just kind of, you know, a, a refinement of a lot of other ideas, which, you know, that has value too. So it's the it's the first and second Maccabees of of uh, RPGs. Mm-hmm. So I, I, oh, I agree with oh. Jeremy real quick. Just it, I mean, it wasn't innovative in terms of turns up. Uh, sorry, in term of mechanics. But uh, I do feel like the innovation from the game came from the narrative, especially the the, the curveballs it throws you. So are we saying that it's in? I'd like to say it's in. I mean, it's two and a half to one half. So yes. <laughs> we All can right. get half votes. Cool. Yeah. Final Fantasy VI is part of the canon. Play it or we will find you. What do you think? 
Why don't you leave a uh, leave a comment in our show notes? You can find them over at usgamer.net by the time this podcast goes up, or you know, send me an email. Uh, you can reach me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net, or you know, yell at me on Twitter or something. The underscore catbot. Uh, maybe you can go after Jeremy too for not being sufficiently uh, excited about Final Fantasy VI. He's at Gamespite over on Twitter. <laughs> That's right. Sick him <laughs> on me. You're the total biscuit of RPGs. And now please welcome a man who loves RPGs even more than I do. He's been developing games since 2009, and in that time he's created such excellent RPGs as Breath of Death 7, the third and fourth Penny Arcade games, and my personal favorite, Cthulhu Saves the World. He's currently working on Cosmic Star Heroine, a brilliant-looking 16-bit RPG that mixes elements of Chrono Trigger and Fantasy Star. Please welcome Z-Boy Games co-founder and programmer, Robert Boyd. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, so the first thing I'm going to ask is, could you give us an update on the progress of Cosmic Star Heroine and maybe also a little bit of history behind the project? Yeah, uh, um, let's see. We've been planning this game for a long time, even while we were still working on the Penny Arcade RPGs. Then we did a Kickstarter for it you know, a little over a year ago. That was very successful. We got a bit over $100,000 from that and lots of uh, enthusiasm from people there. And we've been working on the game since then. Uh, A few months ago, we showed off uh, Cosmic Star Heroine at Sony's first PlayStation Experience convention, and that was a lot of fun. We had about a 30-minute playable segment from the game there and got lots of... You know, great comments and feedback while we were there. And right now we're, you know, mostly just working on content, adding scenarios and stuff to the game. So that'll be ready to come out later this year. Um, so you've been making RPGs for quite a while now. So can you give us a little insight into kind of your background as an RPG fan? Um On your Kickstarter page, you list influences like Persona 4, SMT, Nocturne, uh, Dark Souls, Lunar, Eternal Blue, and Final Fantasy VI. I'm actually surprised that Grandia isn't on there. (laughs) Well, yeah, we, I mean, our last game was very heavily Grandia inspired with the battle system. I mean, and eventually, you know, you name drop so many games that you can't name drop everybody. But yeah, I've been playing RPGs since I was a little kid. I mean, we I got a NES when I was fairly young and played the Dragon Warrior games on that and Final Fantasy and then a Super Nintendo and so on. And so yeah, I've been playing RPGs for quite some time and they're definitely my favorite genre of games. So I really enjoy making them as well. I as a teenager, I dabbled a little in making RPGs, but I didn't really get started till 2010. I seriously, with Breath of Death 7, when I met up with Z-Boy Games co-founder Bill Sternberg, and we teamed up and made that, and then Cthulhu Saves the World. What is it about RPGs in particular that seem to really draw you in? Uh, When I was really young, one of the things I liked about it was just that I didn't beat it the same day I got it. I mean, 
you know, as a kid, you don't have a whole lot of money, so you buy a game and you hope to be able to play it for quite some time. And I really liked how you know you buy these RPGs and they were these huge sprawling epics where you know you start as a little insignificant adventure and you know work your way up and become the great hero of the world. But I mean, I really like how RPGs. Uh, combine a heavy emphasis on story and characters along with very strategic combat and planning out how you're going to build your character's abilities. I find it, you know, really entertaining. It's, you know, it's a a strategy game crossed with a fantasy novel or science fiction novel or whatever the setting is. If you don't mind me bringing my own experiences into it a little bit, one of the things that's always stood out to me about the RPG genre is that especially in the 16-bit era where games just didn't have a lot of story at all, uh, these mm-hmm. games told these really ambitious and kind of sprawling stories. And a lot of them didn't advance much further than the kind of um, fantasy novels or sci-fi novels that you would find at the local you know, bookstore or library. But at the same, but compared to the nothing that was every other genre at the time, it was dazzling. Yeah, definitely. I mean, most games of the genre, you'd get, you know, maybe 20 seconds of story when you started and, you know, maybe a congratulations when you finished it. So RPGs were definitely different there where you'd have actual characters that grew and advanced and, you know, developed throughout the course of the story. Now... The interesting thing about the way that you guys like to tell stories is you tell a story that's usually reasonably in-depth. The Penny Arcade games, for example, had a fairly uh, in-depth story, but you mostly focus on humor. Why is that? Um, I mostly focus on humor just because I find that easier than, you know, being super dramatic and, you know, not humorous. I, with Cosmic Star Heroine, uh, we started out thinking, oh yeah, this will be a really serious, you know, hardcore science fiction fantasy story. And, you know, I just can't do it. I mean, it's way more serious and we paid a lot more focus on the plot and, you know, making everything cohesive. But, you know, as I write, I just have to, you know, throw in little bits of humor here and there. And what I'm really shooting for is something along the lines of the old Sega CD Lunar games where you have, you know, a pretty serious, sometimes dark main storyline, but you have lots of colorful characters and lots of humorous bits here and there. Yeah, my first thought when I saw Cosmic Star Heroine was 1980s anime, uh, 1980s sci-fi anime, which could be pretty serious, but at the same time has a lot of lighter moments. Uh, for example, Macross is something that brings to mind. Um, Cosmic Star Heroine in particular has a really strong anime influence. So what are some of the, the animes in particular that really stood out to you when you were developing it? <laughs> I mean, uh, a big influence of, for the game, of course, is the Fantasy Star s- series, which is extremely anime-influenced, as I'm sure you know, with, you know, just, I mean, like, with number four in particular, they had all the uh, manga-style cutscenes, 
where you know you really got to see the characters in different crucial moments. I, for me, in particular, I'd say, um, although it's more comical than we're trying to aim for in here, I was a big fan of Martian successor Nadesco, which uh, came out, I don't know, I think early 90s, and it's kind of a Macross, Robotech, Evangelion parody, where it's you know, very, very serious at one moment, and then... You know, they'll have an episode where everyone's just watching a, you know, anime within the anime. And yeah, I was about to say that it's interesting that you would pick Nadesco as your kind of favorite anime or, or sci-fi anime because Nadesco is a lot like your RPGs, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> uh, let's well. go Geki Gengar and all that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I'm a big fan of that. I'd like to make something that's kind of serial experiments lane at some point, but I mean, that's a lot more serious and dark and esoteric than we've done so far. So yeah, this one I'd say, yeah, more like Nadesco, you know, some hints of Ranma here and there, that kind of thing. You, you mentioned that you draw a lot of influence from fantasy star in particular. I'm, I'm curious what about Fantasy Star in particular really stands out to you? Well, I personally, I really love how Fantasy Star is a big space opera, and it's not afraid to be that with the mix of science fiction and fantasy. And you don't see that a whole lot among Japanese RPGs. And the other big one that everyone knows about is Star Ocean, and those games usually, you know, start out, you're in a spaceship, and then 15 minutes later, you crash land on a primitive planet, and then, you know, it's basically just like any other fantasy RPG. So I really liked how, you know, in the Fantasy Star series, you meet different aliens, you, you know, get a spaceship and travel to different planets that, you know, each have their own style, and while at the same time, it adds a lot of, you know, <clears throat> fantasy elements with magic and such, and and, you know, the whole heavily 80s anime vibe that it has is very attractive as well. Uh, it seems like Cosmic Star Heroine is easily your most ambitious RPG. Um, tell me a little bit about, especially the cutscenes, like, why put so much emphasis on them? And, I mean, uh, who's making them for you exactly? <laughs> Uh, we are making the cutscenes. I mean, with the the first one that we did, that was you know pretty elaborate. That we did for the whole teaser announcement. We actually got our friend and fellow developer Dean Dodrell to help us out with that because we never had done anything quite that ambitious as far as cutscenes go. He um, he's the developer behind Dustin Legion Tale. And so I mean, we worked with him, and you know, he gave us a lot of pointers, because though he's best known for that game, he actually started out as primarily an animator, and he was working on his own you know, animated feature, so he knew all about you know, the technical side of that. But since then, uh, we've been doing the cutscenes a bit differently, and they're actually all in-engine. So, I mean, they look you know, similar to that one, but 
rather than just create a video and then play it at a certain point, we have all the assets and the game engines, code, we'll move them around and animate them and switch scenes and all that. And we did that uh, for a few reasons. One, we did it just because that's how they did it with the Sega CD Lunar games, which we thought was pretty cool. But also, it has some definite benefits in that we don't have to worry about compression so much uh, or artifacting because you know we're just using the assets directly and animating them directly in our program. And it saves a lot of uh, space, cuts down the file sizes drastically because I mean, we're talking about relatively simple animations you know, in the old low-budget anime style, you'll have a scene that's more of a pan and, you know, slight animation than anything else. But we're really excited about those. Those have been a lot of fun to make. And I, so my partner, Bill, he draws up the art and does the animation. And then I, you know, write some scripts to make it animate through our game engine. I mean, in... Harkening back to Lunar and the Sega CD, uh, Popful Mail, uh, I believe, had uh, not the same cutscenes, but that had a similar kind of look. Um, you're kind of harkening back to an RPG tradition that really doesn't get explored as much, certainly not as much as the Super Nintendos, which you really harken back to with the Penny Art game, games. Why, why do you think the Sega CD... Uh, doesn't get as much love. Was it simply just that it wasn't as popular and so developers aren't going for nostalgia on that front as much? I mean, I'm sure that's definitely part of it because by the end of the era, the Super Nintendo was more popular than the Genesis. And I mean, to play Sega CD games, you also had to buy the Sega CD add-on, which was more expensive and you know meant that not everyone who owned a Genesis was going to be playing every Sega CD game. And, I, and to be honest, there wasn't a whole lot worth playing on the Sega CD outside of the games you mentioned with Lunar and Lunar Eternal Blue and Popful Mail. I, and there were a couple more, but mostly if you didn't want to play those RPGs or really bad FMV games, there wasn't a whole lot of point to getting the Sega CD. So I also think... You know, it's simply a matter of experience and ambition. I, it's a lot easier to make something that's, you know, basic Super Nintendo-style RPG, but when you start getting more advanced and we start throwing in animated Sega CD cutscenes and such, it makes the whole thing much more difficult. I, I've talked about this before, but... We were really surprised with our first game, Breath of Death 7. We went kind of with an NES style for the graphics and format and all that. And it took us about three months to make from start to finish. So with our next game, Cthulhu Saves the World, we uh, wanted to go more for an early Super Nintendo style. And we thought we'd be able to finish it in about the same time because we figured that we had some experience and that we already had a basic RPG engine from our previous game. But in actuality, it took almost three times as long to, for us to make Cthulhu Saves the World as it did for Breath of Death 7. And, and we've definitely noticed that um, with from Cthulhu Saves the World to Cosmic Star Hero, and as we've got 
more of a late era era 16-bit style with the on-screen map uh, on-screen well, on-map battles and you know the animated cutscenes that it definitely drastically increases the complexity of the project and difficulty and how long it takes to make everything so i they i'm from our modern perspective it doesn't feel like there's all that much difference between say an early 16-bit title and a late 16-bit title but it just increases the workload exponentially so i'm honestly not that surprised that there aren't very many developers trying to go for this uh kind of game just because we're one of the few indie RPG developers that has been around for a few years and has experience making these. So I imagine if we see some more developers, you know, release several games in a row that we'll start to see more and more advanced games come out of the indie RPG arena. I always thought it was kind of cool that you started at the early days of the 8-bit when you was something akin to... I don't know, go all the way back to wizardry, I suppose, with Breath of Death 7. Um, and you've steadily advanced until you could say that we're at the Sega CD. How long until you're making PlayStation 2 level RPGs? <laughs> um, well, PlayStation 2 era RPGs would require a substantially lot more money than we have and a much bigger uh, team. I mean, We've got our experience doing 2D and switching to 3D. Even basic 3D would be a huge shift. So I'm not expecting to do anything PS2 era unless you know Sony decides to come to us with $20 million and say, hey, have fun. You hear that, Sony? Come to them with $20 million. Or have, the most, uh, or have a really, really successful Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> Something on the level of like Star Citizen, but for RPGs. Yeah, that would be fun. I, but honestly, I, I, we've always just been the two of us with, you know, uh, somebody else doing the music, and you know, with Penny Arcade, we also had a couple people from Penny Arcade helping out. So going from that to being in charge of a large team would be a very big change, and I'm not even sure we'd be any good at it. So. Getting a little more into the nitty-gritty, um, your RPGs are really notable for the way that they pull together elements of familiar battle systems. For example, the Penny Arcade games uh, definitely had a Grandia and Final Fantasy XIII influence in the way that they were paced, in the way they were balanced, and just in the overall mechanics. Uh, with Cosmic Star Heroine, you're going for more of a, a Chrono Trigger kind of style but you're throwing in a lot more of a, a lot more of your ideas can you can you walk us through some of that development and and just kind of spell out the battle system in general okay yeah i mean we with our battle systems we always spend a lot of time you know figuring out different systems and how everything works together and i mean even with Cthulhu saves the world we must have gone through you know several different versions of the insanity system before we finally settled on the you know pretty straightforward system that we used in the game with cosmic star heroin uh, we tried lots of different things and we finally settled upon the idea that you don't have any magic points in the game 
and each character has a set of abilities that you can customize between battles. And when you use an ability, it's deactivated until you select the defend command, which then reactivates all of your abilities. And we think this, I, from what we've seen from people playing the demo at the PlayStation Experience, uh, we got lots of praise for it, how it really encourages the player to try to think of how they can use all the different abilities in you know that they have and not just rely on one ability that they spam over and over you know trying to figure out when's the best time to use this ability versus that ability and it also you know makes the defend and defend like abilities much more useful in this game than they are in most games which is something i've been working on for quite some time with our different games so I mean, we have that aspect we also have a couple of timing aspects where for example, each character has uh, this hypermeter where they gain a bar in their hypermeter with each turn. And then when it fills up that turn, they become super powerful and all their attacks deal double damage and you know ail ailment abilities are much more likely to be successful. And that goes back with the other system, how you know, we really want the player to be looking ahead and trying to plan out not just their current move, but also their next couple of moves, trying to figure out when's the best, what's the best way so that they'll be prepared for when that hyper mode kicks in uh, to really take advantage of it. Also, uh, we have uh, something where each character has a, uh, style points, which uh, continually go up through the battle, and you become more and more powerful as they go up, which... Uh, I mean, in the past, we've had something where enemies get more powerful as the battle progresses. This time we've added it so also your players become more powerful. And it just kind of makes it so that the battle becomes more and more intense. And eventually you win or you lose. Because I hate it when, you know, battles just drag on and on. And, you know, it's just a matter of attrition. So we think this makes it so it gets you know, more and more exciting until, you know, eventually uh, somebody ends up defeating the other team. You really, uh, when, I, when I hear about the Cosmic Star Heroine battle system, my first thought is there's so many different systems interlocking, uh, interacting with one another. It must be really complicated to kind of program all of this and balance it out. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's... It's not that bad just because we've been making battle systems for a while, but I mean, RPG battle systems are definitely one of the areas that you spend the most time in programming for, you know, the entire game. Because like you said, there's lots of different systems, and then, you know, once you've got the basic battle system working, then you have to go through and make sure that every single ability does what it's supposed to. And uh, since I like to have more interesting abilities than just, you know, fire attacks and lightning attacks, uh, sometimes it's a bit of work getting some of the more unique abilities to uh, function properly. I mean, this is one of the big reasons why, you know, we make our own systems using you know, stuff like XNA and Udini and don't just use a, you know, default tool like RPG Maker just because. And we really like getting into the nitty-gritty and not just doing a generic turn-based battle system. And the fact that, I mean, you have the tools or the, the skill set and everything to make use of these engines kind of gives you more freedom than having to use uh, something like 
RPG Maker, for example. Is that right? Right. I mean, and oh, I was gonna say something, but then I forgot. <laughs> I know the feeling. Oh, but yeah, I. You said you know you've got all these different systems interlocking, but actually a large part of our design process is just simplifying, simplifying, simplifying everything. I you think it sounds fairly complex now, but it was way more complex when we got when we started working on this game. And you know, we just kept looking and thinking, oh, do we really need this system in here? I, is, will this make the game um, a better game, or is it just a lot of added complexity for minimal benefits? And so, and the system we have now, I know it sounds fairly complex when I just sit and talk about it for a few minutes. I mean, it basically comes down to selecting different abilities and, you know, attacking or doing other things in combat with them and, you know, just trying to take advantage of stuff like your hypermeter and, you know, watch as your style, uh, style rating goes up and up during the battle. When I, when I hear you talk about battle systems and kind of the theory behind them, and I, I've read a few of your articles in the past, my first thought is, that your first love when it comes to designing RPGs are battle systems. Like, that is the thing that you enjoy the most. Is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, that's probably fair to say. I With each game, I start out coming with just the general concept for the plot or the main character or the world. But then, you know, I really focus on battle systems. And like you said, I have a lot of fun trying to figure out different ways to you know, fix different problems that traditional battle systems have. Like, you know, with the whole no MP system, uh, traditionally a lot of RPGs encourage the player to, you know, hoard all of their magic points and use boring attacks for regular battles so that they'll be, you know, well-equipped to face whatever boss is at the end of the dungeon. And so with all of our games, we've been trying to encourage the player to you know, take advantage of the different abilities they have. Like with Cthulhu Saves the World, we set it up so that you regain some MP after each battle based on how quickly you were able to win. So that kind of encouraged you to take advantage of all your abilities so that you'd get some MP back and continue to be able to use them. So when it came to Penny Arcade and the Rain Slicked Precipice of Doom, um, Darkness. one of the things... Sorry? Rain's like Precipice of Darkness. Oh, my apologies. God, I can never remember the It's a long title. <laughs> it's a long title. He did Yeah, he... and they actually changed the title between the old games and our games slightly, so I mean everyone gets really confused. I've actually had Jerry from Penny Arcade mess up the title once or twice, so <laughs> Okay. Anyway, Penny Arcade. I should have I should have just called it that to avoid embarrassing myself. Um especially uh, the exploration was really linear, um, something along the lines of Final Fantasy XIII. Why did you take that approach with that game? And do you plan to do something similar with Cosmic Star Heroine, or are you going to have, or is it going to be much more open? Um, with Penny Arcade, I, especially with three, it was we were thinking of trying to, you know, just boiled the RPG genre down to the bare essentials. And actually, with the first draft of that game, it was far more linear than it was in the final version. Uh, if you remember, in the third game, there's kind of a Super Mario 
uh, world style world map where you have different nodes and you travel uh, to the different areas and different sections get unlocked as you go through. And actually, the entire game was going to be like that, you know, including the dungeons and uh, different locations you went to. And we tried that, and lots of people really disliked it. But I, it was we were we had already been working on the game for a while. We needed to get it out, so we did a real quick job of turning them into more traditional dungeons and areas. Uh, taking the stuff we'd already done and, you know, kind of expanding it out a little. So I think that's why the third game in particular felt extremely linear. Uh, and then with the fourth game, we uh, it wasn't quite as linear. There were some, you know, minor areas you could go to on the side. But with the fourth game, we really wanted to do this thing where you had some of your party members in one part of the world and other the other group in another part and they're off doing their own adventures and eventually they uh, get together and combine for the uh, final segment of the game. So that whole structure kind of gave it more of a linear feel, I, t I think, than it would have had otherwise just because you have these two groups that were constantly progressing and doing different things rather than you know a more traditional open world map where you, you know, slowly go through and explore and such. So as far as Cosmic Star Heroine goes, it has a bit of both. There are some sections of the game that are very linear, very much uh, this is the scenario, this is what's going to happen, go, go, go. And then there's other sections where you're uh, given more chance to explore and do different things. And we're really focused this time on making our uh, side quest and our optional content content more interesting and not just go into a cave and fight a couple bad guys and collect the chests afterward. So we have different side quests that are focused on you know different main characters in the game and you know exploring their personality and their background and such while you know still having fun doing different heroic things. By you. By you. Oh. In doing so, you're you really want to avoid um, grinding and that sort of thing. Yeah. What was that? You were kind of breaking up. Sorry, um, but in doing so, you really want to avoid grinding and that sort of thing, right? We want to avoid grinding. Oh, grinding! Yeah, we. I mean, all of our games, we try to avoid grinding and you know focus on the good parts of RPGs and not just sitting and fighting the same battle over and over so I, and with the side content in Cosmic Star Heroine we want it to be you know as interesting as the main content and you know not just a bunch of fetch quests and you know random battles to pad out the game's length yeah i've never been a big fan of grinding myself um and it seems like with your game, you're kind of going for a shorter and sweeter approach, not a 50 to 60 hour game, but more of a 25 hour game. Is that <laughs> just a matter of expediency or are you thinking just, we don't have, uh, we don't have the resources or are you thinking in terms of, well, 25 hours is the sweet spot. Well, I mean, it's to an, to a certain extent, it's not that hard to make an RPG longer I mean, you just make the battles take longer, you make more battles. 
And if they aren't particularly interesting, if they're just the same enemies over and over, I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot of extra effort on the part of the developer to increase the length. And, and you see that in some of the really early NES Super Nintendo RPGs where, you know, they say they're, you know, 30 hours, 40 hours, 50 hours, but there really isn't that much unique content there. So I'm with us, we really want to focus on, you know, the good stuff, the story, the building your characters, the interesting battle and boss encounters. I, and when you're focused on that quality and that fun, uh, it is a way to make a game longer and longer. So and that is definitely part of it where, you know, if we had a bigger budget and more time to spend on our games, we could make them longer. But on the other hand, uh, we've received many compliments from people who have told us how they love to play RPGs, but they hate how every RPG is a major life commitment where you buy the game and then you know, oh, this is, if I want to beat this game, this is what I'm going to be playing for the next month or two months or however long it takes. And we've gotten lots of compliments from people who say that they really appreciate that you know, they can uh, buy Breath of Death 7 and you know, play it over a course of an afternoon or two and have a lot of fun and then finish it and go play something else or go do something else. So I'm with, I mean, Breath of Death 7 was about, I'd say, four or five hours. Cthulhu was, you know, maybe double that. And the Penny Arcade games were about the same length. With Penny Arcade 4, I think we might have been up to, you know, maybe 10, 12, 13 hours. And and then with Cosmic Star Heroine, though we won't know for sure until we're finished, we're personally expecting, based on what we've got and you know our what we have planned and what we have so far and how long it's taken to complete all that, we're expecting that it's going to take people about 15 to 20 hours to complete, right? depending on how fast they are, what difficulty they choose, and you know, how much of the uh, optional content they decide to uh, take on. Looking from... Ah, oh, there's something weird going on with my microphone. Um, can you hear me just fine now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Uh, looking back to the beginning of the development process and to the end, um, how has your ideas for Cosmic Star Heroine changed and... Um, how close are you to being done? <laughs> um, yeah, how close are we to being done? I hope very close. <laughs> and like I said, we're definitely going to release it this year. And I hope uh, to get it out I mean, in the first half of the year rather than the second half. However, I mean, this is our first official console launch. As with all of our other games, they came out on Xbox 360, but it was through the indie service. So it, they didn't have to go through all the official uh, testing and lot check and you know getting ESRB ratings and all that. So we really, I mean, this is going to be a new experience for us. We're not quite sure how long all that stuff is going to take, but I mean we're definitely focused right now on getting it done, and because we know there's lots of people who really want to play it and. You know, we want to be able to play it and uh, release it to the world. As far as things that have changed over the course of the game, 
like I said, the battle system was much more complex than it is now. We really tried to get the basic mechanics very simple and easy to understand so that we could focus on you know, adding complexity and depth through the individual encounters and the abilities and characters you get that join your team. So that's definitely changed. I mean, the some of the characters have changed, you know, with their personalities and their backgrounds. We, I mean, with our Kickstarter, we posted artwork and sprites for all of the main characters that join your team. And for many of them, they are the same as what we originally decided. But, you know, a lot of them, we've just made tweaks here and there to make it work better in the story and make it fit with all the other stuff that we've worked on. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's constantly an iterative process where, you know, you have a basic plan and then you start working on it and then you discover oh, maybe this will work better that way, or you come up with a cool idea and you have to figure out how to fit it in without messing up everything else. So, yeah, if I had better notes, I could tell you exactly everything, but definitely lots of things have changed since we started over a year ago. Robert Boyd, you can find your RPGs on Steam right now, and Cosmic Star Heroine is coming out on PlayStation 4, Vita, PC and Xbox One sometime later this year, hopefully soon. I can't wait to play it. Thanks for joining Thank us you. on the, the Acts of the Blood God and good luck going forward. Thank you very much. All right, we're back. And now, before we finish up, let's hit our mailbag. So on episode one, we talked about what is an RPG? And obviously, people had their own ideas. So let's hear what they had to say. Uh, Hal 9K argued, this is a thing that I hear a lot, interestingly enough. RPGs, he originally thought RPGs could only really be turn-based, like an action game could not really be an RPG. And he says, I wouldn't go as far as that today. Plenty of games have let, let you have more direct action have come along um, that are more RPG than anything else due to heavily heavy reliance on stats such as Deus Ex, MMOs, even more action, more action, even action RPGs like Diablo. Uh, but he says Kingdom Hearts is on the bubble and could go either way, and he still wouldn't count Zelda. Uh, Lord Bob Ree says, I think the jo- RPG as a genre has become is, has been becoming more and more nebulous as traits that are often considered part of RPGs have spread to other genres. Really, the term is probably more indicative of Descent, how Wizardry, Ultima, Dragon Quest, etc. all were developed from pen and paper RPGs than any specific kind of game. I wouldn't have remembered that Zork came from the same place, so I suppose from this point of view that does mean Zork is an RPG, which perhaps leads to text and graphical adventures also being such. And da man or damn man, I think. I think is it, it's perfect. Is it be da man? No, it's spelled D A M M A N. So I'm going to go with da man. You can feel free right. to co- correct me. I think it's perfectly healthy for people to have their own differing definitions as to what an RPG is. I suppose my own has some emphasis on the focus the game puts on stat or character ability progression compared to other elements of the game. And while I love me some story-driven RPGs, I don't think the existence or strength of the narrative plays any real part. I mean, Rogue is an RPG, right? Right? 
Right. It has kobolds, so it must be. Addendum <laughs> number 5,277. The pr- presence of kobolds guarantees that's, RPG-dom. That's the new yardstick. Kobold col- content. I I actually I agree with demand. I really want some kind of progression in my RPGs, uh, which is one reason that uh, I don't think Codename Steam is an RPG. It's it's it's, it's a strategy game with some very basic RPG elements. Uh, people are asking me, will you be sharing your thoughts on Codename Steam on Acts of the Blood God? Uh, well, you can read my review on the site. But I think the thing that separates it from, say, Valkyria Chronicles is that it hides all the stats. You can't. You can't materially progress the characters in the same way that you can in Valkyria Chronicles. And Valkyria Chronicles just goes way deeper in terms of potentials, uh, the interaction, the way that the characters have different relationships with other members of the team that impacts the way that they play on the field, and more in-depth stats. Uh, the most that you can really do to customize your party in Codename Steam is mess around with the sub-weapons. So that those are your thoughts. Um, if you have any feedback, obviously send us an email or leave a comment. Do you guys have any additional thoughts on this? I, I'm still I'm kind of stumped on the Codename Steam question. Mm. Oh, so are, are we going to play this game? Is Codename <laughs> Steam an RPG? Uh, we could. Like, I don't I don't know what to say. Um, I mean, like it's it's it, like to me, and uh, I. I, I talked with Intelligent Systems, and they'll be inter- the interview will be posted at some point soon. But uh, I was talking to them, and, and I was asking, like, this game feels like a board game. It, do you guys, like, play board games? He's like, oh, actually, we, we prototype things on paper. We actually make our own board games to try out mechanics. So to me, Codename Steam feels like, like a virtual board game. Just with, It's all tile-based movement and uh, very, very limited rules, but they're still applied in different ways. I don't know. Yes, that's that's but- my own weird take on it. If, if we were calling it like a pen and paper RPG, then it would be like a pre-made in which you you take a pre-existing character who has been rolled up and they have some like traits. Like, for example, um, the lion, uh, Tiger Lily, I think, has the ability defiance, which will mean that she doesn't automatically die. Um, and it has HP, but you have no real, you have no control over the actual stats. You have no way to actually progress it. So in that sense, you're just, you know, putting together a four, a party of four of pre-existing characters and letting them go. Jeremy, any thoughts? No, not really. I've said my piece. Indeed. All right. Well, that's the end of this episode of Acts of the Blood God. I've already said where you guys can reach me. Uh, Bob, where can you be reached? You can find me at Bob Servo on Twitter, and please read all my stuff at US Gamer. It's really great. And listen to Retronauts. It's our classic gaming podcast every week, a new episode. Uh, either go to US Gamer's front page to see that, or go to retronauts.com, or subscribe to it via any podcast, the device you like or prefer. Thank you. Thank you. Jeremy? Um, hi, I'm Jeremy Parrish. I'm on Twitter as GameSpite, but you already know that because... Cat sent you after me with uh, torches and picks, pitchforks. Um, you can find me hosting US Gamers real podcast uh, from us to you, where everyone else shows up to. And uh, then I do other stuff on the internet. It's pretty cool. I'm totally. I, I feel like I should totally edit in the Kefka laugh uh, after the <laughs> after that because it seems appropriately evil. I'm sure you can find a 10 minute loop of it on YouTube. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> 
You can put the Battletoads pause theme underneath it, so it's just Kefka laughing over the Battletoads pause theme. That sounds like there's, something you find in Guantanamo Bay, actually. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, wow. Um, I mean, so I have no idea what the next episode's going to be. We're going to be playing by ear, as always. But uh, it feels like the calm before the storm, guys. Uh, we got a lot of stuff coming up pretty soon. We got Final Fantasy Type-0 HD coming. We got the Final Fantasy 15 demo, which we'll obviously be talking about uh, probably both here and the flagship podcast. I'm not sure. And we've also got Bloodborne, which Bob is like ready to go on. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, Unless you Bob's, don't think that Bob's really excited about going. Uh, he's he's getting an upgrade. He's getting a a uh, promotion from Dark Souls Two editor to <laughs> Bloodborne editor. Yep. So look forward to months and months of Bloodborne content. Unless the game is bad, which I don't think it will be. I'm really excited, and as I was saying on Twitter, it is frankly amazing to me that that series has become ultra high priority review material and is considered uh, i it's kind of become a top tier series uh the souls game slash bloodborne it's really such a far cry from when i went on a video in 2009 and had to explain <laughs> demon souls to these people who are going i don't get it this game is terrible what is going on here it's hard you know, it's taken them five or six years, but they've definitely earned earned it. All right. So, everybody, thanks for listening. I've been Cat Bailey, and thanks to John, to Bob, and Jeremy, and, and Robert, John. and John, yeah, and John. John, John, too. You were quiet, but you know, you've got a great attitude, and I love you. <laughs> this has been Acts of the Blood God, and I will see you next week. Happy adventuring. Music for Acts of the Blood God provided by Leif Chappelle. Find more of his music at leifchappelle.com and the RPG Maker Music Pack at rpgmaker.net. For more great gaming content, follow us at usgamer.net.